Hello and welcome to SparkleTech, episode number 65 in the Patchwork series telling the stories of my favorite city, San Francisco. Argonaut To many of the thousands of gold seekers pouring through the Golden Gate and tumbling over the Sierra Nevada into California back in 1849, the word was a familiar one. Contrary to popular belief, many of this horde were educated men, but it's hard to say just who first plucked the term from Greek mythology and applied it to the gold seekers themselves. In the ancient story of Jason and the Golden Fleece, our hero Jason was charged with an impossible quest to bring back the fleece of a golden-winged ram. Jason acquires a huge ship and sails off into years of bizarre peril and high adventure. Argonaut was the name applied to his band of heroic companions, and why? It was simply the combination of the name of Jason's ship, the Argos, with the Greek word for sailor, Nautis. In the 1800s, as today, Argonaut had come to mean an adventurer engaged in a quest, usually by sea. The parallels between Jason's search for the Golden Fleece and the 49ers' quest for California gold proved irresistible. There was the gold, of course, and also the unpredictable adventure and hazardous nature of the journey. Even the aspect of sea travel found some resonance, since half the gold seekers came by ship, and the rest by the covered wagons widely known as prairie schooners. By the 1870s, Argonaut was in common use to identify that first generation of gold-seeking pioneers, and in any number of later reminiscences, they happily identify themselves as such. Charles Warren Haskins was one of these. Raised in New Bedford, Massachusetts, he became one of the first wave of Argonauts to head for the new Eldorado. Though improbable tales of stream beds piled with gold nuggets had begun to filter back east in 1848, it wasn't until a letter from California's military governor reached the president's desk that the gold rush was seriously launched. Governor Mason apologized to President Polk that he hadn't written of the matter sooner, but though he'd been receiving daily reports of fabulous treasures, he could not bring himself to believe them until he'd visited the gold district himself. By the time he got there, there were already about 4,000 men in the gold fields, panning the rivers, digging small pits, and prying chunks of gold out of the rocks with the tips of butcher knives. Mason was flabbergasted by what he saw and estimated the daily take at $50,000 a day, if not more. In December of 1848, President Polk officially acknowledged that the rumors emanating from California were true. Before January 1st of 1849, fewer than a thousand souls had embarked on the western trip. But as Charles Haskins climbed aboard a clipper ship just three months later, the number had already swollen to tens of thousands. By the end of that storied year, close to a hundred thousand Argonauts would make their way to California. Haskins' sea voyage lasted over five months, and when he and his fellow passengers finally arrived, the days of easy pickings were long gone. There was still gold to be had if you worked hard and were a little bit lucky, but of adventure and hardship, there was plenty left. Charles worked the gold fields around Hangtown for a couple of years and then returned to New Bedford to get married in 1851. 
he brought his new wife back to California. Hangtown was now known by the more civilized name of Placerville, and farmed, raised a family, owned a mine, and ran a general store. In 1886, they moved down to Oakland, but it was during the following year, on an extended visit to his son in Idaho, that Charles finally mined the real treasure of his gold rush experience, his memories. He began to write a book, and to explain it, here's part of the preface. While residing in the village of Kingston, in the silver mining regions of northern Idaho during the winter of 87-88, and being compelled to remain within doors in consequence of the great depth of snow and intense cold, in order to pass away the time, I amused myself by writing an account of scenes and incidents that occurred in California in early days in the mining regions. These events are written entirely from memory. As to the correct description of events, I ask the remnant of that band of sturdy Argonauts who laid the foundation of a great state to bear me witness. Haskins called his book The Argonauts of California, and the first half consists of 24 chapters of lively stories, observations, and adventures, told in an energetic vernacular style that recalls Mark Twain. The second half of the book contains the name of 36,000 of Charles Haskins' fellow Argonauts, listed by the ship in which they arrived, or by the wagon train in which they'd traveled. Though Charles was a little sloppy about sources, he didn't list any, these lists have provided an invaluable reference for researchers and historians. The thing I love about Gold Rush reminiscences like this one are the vivid picture they reveal of what that era was actually like. Not a dry-as-dust historical analysis, but the memory of one human, full of individual insights and quirky perspectives. In short, a story. I read you one of these several months ago, written by William Swain. That was SparkleTech number 32, Letter from the Gold Rush. And periodically, I'll return to first-hand accounts, hoping that you enjoy them as much as I do. Without further ado, here are chapters 5 and 6 of Charles Haskins' The Argonauts of California from 1890, slightly edited, in which our intrepid Argonaut arrives in San Francisco, heads up river to Sacramento City, and then makes his way to the mining camp of Hangtown. Upon the morning of the 20th, we sailed in through the Golden Gate, coming at anchor in front of the tented city of San Francisco, having made the passage from our native city to this place in the space of five months and 17 days. The city presented the appearance of a vast army encampment, and it was evident that the advance guard of Alexander's army had arrived, sure enough, and had conquered what they sought. In the contemplation of the scene as we saw it from the roof of the cook's galley, we found deep consolation in the thought that, in case the future would prove that we had traveled so many thousands of miles in search of gold, only to find upon our arrival that we had been badly sold, we were not alone at any rate. There was a grim satisfaction, therefore, in viewing the great number of vessels at anchor in the harbor from the various ports of the world that had brought to the coast thousands of others for the same purpose. It is now, after upwards of 40 years have passed since we sailed in through the Golden Gate, of some interest to know what's become of the passengers of the old ship. There are but three of us at present remaining upon the Pacific coast. Many of them died here, 
The greater portion of them returned to their eastern homes, but a few of them are now left, and of all that number of gold hunters, not one of them succeeded in his anticipations of filling a pork barrel with the precious metal, and but a small portion of them in filling an old bootleg or a beer bottle with the same. It's necessary to explain here that the ingenuity of many mechanics in the far-off Atlantic states had been exercised in the construction of various devices for the extraction of gold from the sand and soil which were, unfortunately, mixed with it. Our passengers, having full faith in their great value and efficacy, had brought quite a number of such machines with them. They were of all varieties and patterns, made of copper, iron, zinc, and brass. Some of them were to be worked by a crank, others, more pretentious, having two cranks, whilst another patent gold washer, more economical and efficient, worked with a treadle. One variety was upright, requiring the miner to stand while using it. Still another, the inventor of which, being of a more benevolent and humane temperament, was arranged in such a manner that the poor, tired miner could sit in his armchair and take his comfort as he worked it. One machine requires special mention. It was in the shape of a huge fanning mill, with sieves properly arranged for assorting the gold ready for bottling. All chunks too large for the bottle would be consigned to the pork barrel. This immense machine, which during our passage excited the envy and jealousy of all who had not the means and opportunity of securing a similar one, required, of course, the services of a hired man to turn the crank, whilst the proprietor would be busily engaged in shoveling in the pay dirt and pumping water, the greater portion of the time being required, as was firmly believed, in the corking of the bottles and fitting heads to the pork barrels. This machine was owned by a Mr. Allen from Cambridge, Massachusetts, who'd brought with him from that renowned head center of learning a colored servant who was to manage and control the crank portion of the invaluable institution. And so sanguine were all passengers in regard to the nature and value of the various machines for the extraction of gold that apparently nothing but actual trial would convince them to the contrary. Their faith in all kinds of mining machinery was put to the test sooner than expected, for upon landing we found lying upon the sand and half buried in the mud hundreds of similar machines bearing silent witness at once to the value of our gold-saving machinery without the necessity of a trial. Of course, ours were also deposited carefully and tenderly upon the sandy beach, from where, in a short time, they were washed into deep water, making amusement for the shrimps, clams, and crabs, which were no doubt under the impression that some unfortunate Italian vessel with a cargo of hand organs had foundered in the locality. It was reported soon after that the crew of a Dutch vessel that passed near Rincon Rock close by one dark and foggy night saw distinctly a group of sea nymphs seated upon it, and that each one of them was engaged in turning the crank of what appeared to be some kind of musical instrument. Old Neptune was seen standing in their midst as leader of the orchestra, keeping time with his sluice fork. We saw scattered around among the bushes near the shore, also, a great number of trunks, chests, and valises of all sizes, most of them containing clothing of all descriptions. These had all been thrown aside as useless encumbrances by their owners, who'd started for the mines, being unable to pay the extra freight charged upon them. We found that no wharves had yet been constructed, and the tide being out, it was somewhat difficult to land without wallowing through some short distance of very dark mud. 
One of the sights which attracted our attention was a newly constructed sidewalk, commencing at the building at that time occupied by Simmons, Hutchinson & Company, and extending in the direction of Adams & Company's express office, for a distance of about 75 yards, I think. In any other portion of the earth except California, this sidewalk would have been considered a very extravagant piece of work, hardly excelled by the golden pavements in the New Jerusalem. The first portion of the walk was constructed of Chilean flour in 100-pound sacks, and which in one place had been pressed down nearly out of sight in the soft mud. Then followed a long row of large cooking stoves, over which it was necessary to carefully pick your way, as some of the covers had been accidentally thrown off. Beyond these again, and which completed the walk, was a double row of boxes of tobacco of large size. Though this style of walk may seem very extravagant, even to an old pioneer, at that time, sacks of Chilean flour, cooking stoves, tobacco, and pianos were the cheapest materials to be found. Lumber was in the greatest demand, selling in some instances at $600 per thousand board feet, whilst the former articles, in consequence of the great supply, were of little value. San Francisco presented a strange scene. There were but few buildings, but the surrounding hills were covered with tents scattered promiscuously about, without regard to method or order. Business of all kinds was lively, and although coin was scarce, gold dust answered every purpose. Gambling houses and bar rooms were numerous for the accommodation of citizens, but the former for the accommodation more especially of the miners. These were daily arriving from the mines and could be seen coming from the landing place towards Adams and Company's express office with their sacks of gold dust, to be sold or forwarded to their friends in the east. Many, however, were forced to return again to the mines in a few days, after having struck bedrock in one of the gambling houses in their curiosity to discover upon which end of the tiger its tail was hung, and they generally made the discovery. We found the cost of living in the city very high, although certain articles, as flour for instance, were plentiful and cheap. Meals at the restaurants were from one to two dollars. One of our passengers had about 80 pounds of sweet potatoes, which he sold readily for a dollar a pound and also a few oranges, which he sold for a dollar each. The following bill of fare gives an idea of the cost of living. Here I'll just list a couple of examples. Haskins lays out the whole menu, though how he did this from memory I really can't imagine. Oxtail soup, $1. Stuffed mutton, $1. Corned beef and cabbage, $1.25. Stewed kidney with champagne sauce, $1.25. Irish potatoes, mashed, 50 cents. And listed under extras, fresh California eggs, $1 apiece. An observation of the crowds of persons continually arriving in great numbers and crowding into the new city proved them to be men of an active and energetic character who'd come for a certain specific purpose and were determined to accomplish it by all possible legitimate means we found that a portion only of those who entered the Golden Gate had any desire to extract their share of gold from the mines, but were content to remain in San Francisco, believing that the flow of gold to the city would enable them to gather in a fair pro rata of it in some business enterprise. A company of us came for the special purpose of mining, and all preparations for the proper working of such an enterprise had been made previous to sailing. 
we had purchased all necessary tools and instruments for the purpose in view. For these reasons, we did not linger in San Francisco longer than was necessary, but began immediately the work of putting together the materials of a large scow, or barge, which we'd brought with us. Upon this barge, when complete, we placed our effects, and with a fair wind and tide in our favor, started on our journey towards Sacramento City, at which place we arrived upon the fourth day out from San Francisco. At this place, after making a proper division of our provisions, tools, and instruments, we dissolved co-partnership as a company, each and every one going to such a mining district in which, in his opinion, were to be found the richest mines. Sacramento City, being the point of departure for all mining localities so far discovered, presented a very lively scene, and almost daily could be seen long strings of men on their way to the mines, carrying upon their backs their roll of blankets, on the top of which would be fastened certain cooking utensils and other conveniences. After selling off everything belonging to the company which could not be divided, we made a division of proceeds, and then every man was for himself. Two others and myself formed a company, and after deciding upon the mining camp which we should visit, we employed a Pike County bullwhacker who agreed to deliver us and our effects to Hangtown for a certain consideration. We accepted the offer, and in a few hours were on our way to Hangtown. Captain Pike, as we christened him, had full control of his craft, being captain, cook, and all hands, running into port and camping when and wherever he pleased. He was a tall, powerful man and carried an ox gad, which was about twelve feet in length and large in proportion, to which was attached a lash made of rawhide, long and large enough for a ship's backstay. With this, he would urge his cattle forward by whacking it over their backs occasionally. But in general, this was unnecessary, for the crack of it, which made a report like a gun, was a sufficient inducement for them to hurry up. This rare breed of bullwhackers has now become almost entirely extinct in California. More gentle, as well as more humane means of driving cattle have been introduced from the Far East, and it may not be out of place here to illustrate this by an incident which occurred only a few months later. The bullwhacker, with his four yoke of cattle, was driving up over the hill from Hangtown on his way to Sacramento City. The hill was long and in some places quite steep, and the road was very crooked, winding among and around the trees. On the side of the hill was a log cabin in which were living a company of miners from the state of Vermont. The ox driver stopped in front of the cabin for a rest, and the Vermonters laughed at and ridiculed his method of driving cattle with such a monster whip used in such a cruel manner. But Pike said, them there cattle couldn't be driven any other way. One of the boys, however, made a bet with him that he would, by the use of a little switch only, sit in the empty wagon and drive his team to the top of the hill without accident or running against the trees. Pike accepted the bet, and with the rest of them, got into the wagon. The Yank, as Pike called him, cut a light switch, and after getting the oxen well started underway, took his seat upon the front of the wagon, and in that manner drove them to the top of the hill without any trouble whatever, to the great astonishment of the bullwhacker, as well as to the cattle, no doubt. Well, says Pike, if that don't beat anything I ever heard tell on, I seen him drive a heap of cattle in old Missouri, but never seen it done with a little baby gad like that before. Blamed if I don't try it myself. You Yanks beat thunder. 
We passed many on their way down who'd become discouraged and homesick, disappointed in their expectations and declaring that it was all a fraud. This, of course, was not very encouraging news for men who'd sailed around Cape Horn and then to find it was all a fraud. Among them were two or three acquaintances of mine who'd been into the mines for about two weeks and were now returning to the east. They explained the state of affairs, saying that there was but little gold to be found, and that it required very hard and laborious work in the hot sun to get it, and very dirty work, too, as it was away down out of sight in the mud. They therefore advised all acquaintances whom they met to return with them. We concluded, however, to continue on and see with our own eyes what the chances were, and if these men who were on their way home had really spoken the truth. It required many years to find this out, and if the great majority of miners who are now mining were asked their opinion in relation to it, they would be unanimous in their conclusion that these men did come near telling the truth. It seems to have been the opinion of many who came into California soon after the discovery of gold that the rich metal was to be found upon the surface of the ground, and that it could be very easily scraped up and cleaned from the dirt. Consequently, there was much disappointment upon finding that it was necessary to dig in the mud and water for it. Many emigrants who'd crossed the plains with their ox teams would stop alongside the road and watch the process of mining. Upon one occasion, an emigrant inquired, Well now, and is that the way you fellers has to do to get the darn stuff? When informed that such was the method necessary to get it, he remarked, Yeah, well then, I don't care for none in mine. Gee how, Buck, just go along there. And for this reason, hundreds passed through the mining region to the valleys below. About noon of the fourth day from Sacramento, we crossed over the hill, from the summit of which the town, with its log cabins and tents, was visible below. From this point, we had a full view of the creek and portions of the various ravines, where we saw hundreds of busy men hard at work with pick and shovel. From the busy scene, a spectator, who was unaware of the object of this laborious work, would imagine that an army had encamped in the locality and were at work in the trenches. My native town was well represented, there being at this time about 300 there from New Bedford who'd sailed round the Horn. I found many acquaintances among them, and all appeared to be cheerful and confident of success in their new business. I should judge, after looking about and among the various flats, creeks, ravines, and gulches for a few days, that at this time there were about 4,000 persons altogether in town and in the immediate vicinity, but only about half of them were engaged in mining. The latter class was composed, at this early day, almost entirely of citizens of the United States, although there were a few from other countries, and all kinds of trades and professions were represented. Here at work in the mud and water, with his gold spectacles and kid gloves, was a lawyer. Near him was a physician with his pants in his boots, sporting a plug hat. Here could be found clerks, bankers, storekeepers, barbers, hotel waiters, sea captains and mates, hotel keepers and congressmen, nearly all from the New England states who'd come around Cape Horn to seek their fortunes. Upon a slight elevation, two well-dressed men were hard at work. They were lawyers from the city of New York and were styled the Dandy Miners. They continued mining for several months and succeeded in making a very respectable fortune. Upon the arrival of the first gold seekers in the summer and fall of 49, houses were, of course, unnecessary. Those who were fortunate enough to be the owners of tents occupied them, 
but the greater portion made their camps in the shade of the trees. As winter drew near, however, it was evident that other means of shelter would be necessary. Consequently, log cabins were constructed around among the ravines and gulches in all suitable localities convenient to a spring of water. Wood for fuel was, of course, plenty. Lumber for building purposes was scarce and very dear. All household furniture, such as chairs, tables, etc., was constructed in the most primitive style, often from old barrels and boxes when convenient. Much ingenuity was displayed in the construction of the household necessities, but more especially in the case of chairs. The miner's easy chair, which he loved to take his comfort in after the day of work was over, was usually made from an empty flour barrel, being cut out in the proper manner and made with rockers. Some, who possessed more aristocratic tendencies, would have these chairs lined and stuffed in good style, and they were pronounced very comfortable and equal to anything that could be bought in New York or Boston. One remarkable fact was noticed at this early day in relation to the habits of the 49ers, when we take into consideration their isolated condition, away from the influences of civilized society, and that was in the observance of the Sabbath. As a general rule, all Eastern men especially were true to their early training and rested from their mining labors. It was upon this day that all mending and washing was done, and other little necessary household duties attended to, for it must be remembered that the washwoman had not yet put in an appearance, but she was, however, on the way. The chief amusement upon Sunday afternoons with the great majority was in lounging around the various saloons and gambling houses. But to many, however, this part of the day was devoted to visiting the cabins of each other. There were many good singers to be found among the ravines and gulches, and upon pleasant moonlit evenings could be heard the notes of Ben Bolt from the boys who occupied the cabin on the hill above, while from another cabin in the ravine could be heard the refrain of Do They Miss Me at Home or Sweet Home. There were also many good musicians to be found among the miners. Many of them had brought their instruments with them, and often at night could be heard echoing from the ravines and canyons the sound of the fiddle, flute, accordion, and clarinet. One young man from Boston had brought his bugle, and when perched above upon the summit of a hill overlooking the town upon pleasant moonlight evenings, the strains of Oft in the Stilly Night, The Emigrant's Lament, or the martial strains of the star-spangled banner would be heard echoing far and near among the ravines and gulches, and hailed by all with the greatest delight. We found on arriving in Hangtown quite a number of business houses, stocked with a very good assortment of provisions and nearly all other articles for miners' use. There were three hotels in town. One large log cabin, used for a hotel, was called the El Dorado. The most numerous business houses in town were, however, the saloons and gambling houses. Across the river could also be seen at this time the name of John T. Little in large letters on the side of an extensive warehouse. This, with other various signs, informed the mining community that here could be found all kinds of mining supplies, and that the highest price was paid for gold dust. Following the road past Mr. Little's store, up over the mountain towards the middle fork of the American River, we found several camps where rich mines had been discovered. 
Here, Haskins lists a great many names of shopkeepers, businessmen, and doctors, which I will spare you. He writes a great story about one Dr. Rankin, however, which is worth repeating. The doctor was a southerner by birth, and one of the old school, as was indicated by his style of dress, which consisted of a white fur plug hat, blue coat with brass buttons, a frill shirt front, and a buff-colored vest with trousers to match. Dressed in this style, he went one day astride his favorite Bucephalus to visit a patient a few miles from town. It had been raining recently, and the road upon which he was traveling was house-deep with soft yellow mud. He passed on his way a tall, large, raw-boned Scotsman, carrying upon his shoulder a sack of flour, and as he passed the pedestrian, the doctor remarked that wallowing through the deep mud with a load like that must be tough work. Well, retorted the Scotsman, and that's me ain business, and had I ye doon here, Mimon, I would wallow ye in the mud too. You would, would you, said the doctor, at the same time leaping from his horse and landing knee-deep in the mud alongside the Scotsman. The latter laid down his burden upon a log, and seizing the doctor by the nape of the neck and the seat of his pants, he raised him up and dropped him in the deepest part of a mud hole. The doctor wasn't long in getting out, and mounting his horse was soon on his way home, remarking to the valiant Scott as he turned to leave, Well now, Scotty, you done that well. About sixteen years afterwards, the doctor was sitting in the bar room of the What Cheer House in Sacramento City, talking of old times. During the conversation, he related how the tall Scotsman had rolled him in the yellow mud and how he looked as though he'd been run through a miner's ground sluice. Sitting tipped back in a chair at the side of the room was an old farmer, half asleep, but listening very attentively to the reminiscences of old times. When the doctor commenced relating the incident, the old farmer raised upon his feet and at the conclusion stepped up and placing his hand upon the doctor's shoulder remarked, Yes, doc. And ye told me, ye remember, that I doon it well, too. Of course, the doctor was somewhat astonished, as well as pleased to meet his old antagonist, and again acknowledged once more that he'd done it well at any rate. Handshaking and the usual refreshments followed, as a matter of course. The village of Coloma is situated upon the south branch of the American River. It was here that gold was first found by Marshall. The old mill where he worked is still standing. Mr. Marshall resided here during his life, living in a small cabin upon the side hill, a portion of which he had planted with vines and fruit trees. The first mining, of course, was done here, and this location constituted the nucleus from which radiated all other mining localities, for it was from this point that the prospectors started out in various directions in the search for other mines. Some of the prospectors took a southerly course and found the rich deposits among the ravines of what is now called Hangtown Creek. Others found Kelsey's, Spanish dry diggings, and further north they ran afoul of Georgetown and Greenwood, each locality deriving its name from some circumstance, event, or from the name of the finder. By the time of the arrival of the first gold seekers, who came via Cape Horn, hundreds of new locations had been made and named around the immediate vicinity of Coloma and by the 1st of December, 1849, the country had been traveled over and prospected from Coloma to the Stanislaus River on the south and up to the Yuba River on the north, and valuable mines found for over a hundred miles in both directions. Before commencing the business of mining, our little company concluded first to build a residence, 
which we constructed of logs in the regulation style, with chimney in the rear, the front door opposite, and after stowing away pots, pans, and kettles in their proper places, putting up bunks with all the necessary arrangements of curtains, outriggers, etc., a few more blows with a hammer here and there made us master of the situation, or of the castle at least. After finishing our residence, we started into the business of mining, for which we'd traveled nearly halfway around the globe. In a large ravine near at hand, called Oregon Ravine, as it was first found by a man from that state, we determined to make our first effort. There were at work in the same locality about 200 others. The method of mining was of the most primitive character. The dirt would be dug down to the bedrock and thrown to one side, as the dirt and gravel in immediate contact with the bedrock was all that was considered of any value. This was put in sacks and packed upon our backs down to the creek, where the gold was separated from it by panning. Many, however, would spread their pay dirt upon the ground, and when it was thoroughly dry, would winnow it out by pouring it from the pan to the ground, the wind, when strong enough, answering a very good purpose. This was the style of mining as practiced by the Mexicans and Chileans, but it was a very slow process and would only pay when no water could be found. From the hill above, it was a strange sight to see men of all classes and from every state in the Union thus clustered together upon one spot in common, and all inspired with one desire, to dig gold. Over in that ravine yonder is a crowd of Yankees from Maine and Vermont, with a leavening of a few Missourians and Kentuckians. In that large ravine to the right are three or four hundred hard-working earnest gold seekers from Massachusetts and New York, and from Connecticut and Ohio, as well as a few from Georgia, Arkansas, and Old Virginia. Upon that extensive flat below, the great crowd at work is of a more cosmopolitan character, being composed of men from all states in nearly equal proportions. But few are noticed at present hailing from the southern states except those of a sporting character, who will be found among the saloons and gambling houses. Among these, a few of the old-style southern politicians, who are dressed in regulation blue dress coat with its great brass buttons and a white plug hat, can be seen daily promenading around from place to place with a crooked cane hanging upon the arm. Quite a number of slaves from Tennessee and Kentucky were brought across the plains during this year and were taken into the mines by their masters. This kind of mining by slave labor did not, however, prove a success and was soon abandoned. One man from Tennessee brought his slaves, three in number, into Hangtown and located in a small gulch near Spanish Ravine. The claim which they worked was rich, and the master was happy, though his happiness was of short duration. He was much astonished at the close of one very pleasant day when, as he went to take possession of the gold dust which had been washed out during the day, he was politely informed by his rebellious subjects to just take his hands off from that there gold dust as it belonged to them. He was further informed that they was in a free country now and slaves no more, but if Massa was willing to come in and work with them on shares, he could do so. He endeavored to reason with the boys, but in vain. He told them that he would appeal to the law, which he finally did, but with no better success, and he returned in disgust to Tennessee, leaving his slaves masters of the field, as well as of themselves. Two slaves worked in the spring of 50 in Log Cabin Ravine, now Bedford Avenue. 
They were from the city of Louisville, Kentucky, and owned by a very prominent physician at that place. The doctor had furnished his two slaves with a good team and all necessary supplies and had sent them forth to earn their freedom, the agreement being that when they'd forwarded to him the sum of $2,300 in gold, the master in return would send them their freedom papers. They were informed that they were free men, and it was unnecessary to send money to purchase their freedom. But they were firm in their purpose to do just as they had agreed with their master, and since he had trusted in their word, they should not disappoint him, and they did not. The money was sent to their master through Adams and Company's Express, and in due time, they received their papers. In a few months afterwards, they forwarded to their late master the sum of $800 also, as the price of their sister's freedom, and in the fall of 1850, she met her brothers in Hangtown with her papers of deliverance in her pocket. There were no cradles or toms at this time in the mines for the reason that there was no water. But with the first rains, cradles made their appearance, and towards spring, long toms were used, but regular sluices did not come into use until a year later. The first hole that we dug, after having measured off and staked our claims, 15 feet square to each man, in accordance with the miner's law, gave us the gold very fine, and by the advice of a few veteran miners who'd followed the business off and on for nearly eight days, we moved to other vacant spots nearer to the center of the ravine, where we found the gold much coarser and easier to save. It was the custom for miners to get out to work as early in the morning as possible, usually about 8 o'clock, and we quit work about 4 p.m. This gave us sufficient time to finish our evening meal and to dress up, ready for a long evening, lounging through the various gambling houses and seeing the sights in town, which, however, at this early day were not to be compared in number or in gorgeousness with those of a year later. The chief pleasure among us was in visiting the cabins of each other and in listening to the old yarns from the seafaring men, or in tasting some of their favorite dishes, which they learned to manufacture out on the ocean, such, for instance, as dundefunk, lobsconce, and a variety of others, to hear the various opinions expressed upon the subject of cooking. It gave us the impression that cooking was one of the fine arts and that the only object in life, or the chief aim in existence, was to eat. Of course, we, the novices in the art, soon became quite expert in the chemical combination necessary for dundefunk, lobsconce, hard and soft tack, etc., and in a short time were able to boast of our dexterity also in whirling a flapjack up through the chimney and catching it again in our frying pan, right side up, by holding the ladder outdoors on the other side of the house. It was customary among many of the miners to play all kinds of practical jokes upon each other, and one amusement in particular was to place a flat stone or board upon the top of a chimney, and then to be near at hand in the morning when the victims were trying to cook their breakfast amidst the smoke, occasionally coming to the door with tears streaming down their cheeks, swearing until all nature around looked blue. It's necessary to explain here, as it may give a wrong impression in relation to the habits of the old-timers, to elucidate what's meant by the boys dressing up after the day's work was done. In all civilized societies, the expression to dress up signifies to change or to alter one's general appearance by the donning of a boiled shirt, store clothes, and a plug hat, perhaps. There was no necessity, however, in the mines for being very particular about the style. It's true that at this time there would be found occasionally one who would shave or trim up his whiskers and even don a fancy necktie, 
but he was looked upon with suspicion. There was not, in the opinion of these old-timers, any necessity or use in dressing up in store clothes or boiled shirts. The dress-up, therefore, to which I had reference, consisted of washing the face and hands, taking a fresh cut of fine-cut tobacco, Mrs. Miller's brand, or donning a clay pipe, well-stocked. All of my readers, perhaps, have during their lives many times read of or heard discuss the old worn-out subject of female influence. But it is but very seldom that any of us are enabled to see the effect of the absence of women so practically illustrated as it was in the mines. For the first two years, or up to the arrival of the emigration from across the plains in the fall of 1850, the condition of the mining population, especially their carelessness in regard to appearances, mode of life, and habits in general, showed conclusively that man, when alone and deprived of that influence which the presence of women only can produce, would in a short time degenerate into a savage and barbarous state. At this time also, there was but little necessity for law, except to restrain the vicious element among the few Mexican horse thieves who found their way into the mining regions, but this class Judge Lynch dealt with in a very summary style, and they soon became scarce. No standing army or armed force of policemen were required to protect the rights of the 49ers, for they were, as a general rule, a class who respected law and order, as well as the rights of others, and illustrated the fact that among a class of men who are disposed to do what's right, no law for their government or control is really necessary. It is very true, however, that in the cases of many who had occupied high positions in church organizations in the East, upon finding themselves thus placed afar from all restraint in church influences, did reveal their true nature by falling from grace and practicing habits that were strictly prohibited by ecclesiastical law. Yet these were exceptions only, not the rule. We were, of course, under the jurisdiction of the U.S. government, but no laws could be put in force or executed as no officers had been appointed for the purpose. We elected, however, an alcalde, according to the Mexican custom, who decided all cases occurring in relation to the disputes among minors. All cases of a criminal nature were decided by a committee of the whole, a jury for the purpose being chosen from the mining community, and all criminals being granted a fair and impartial trial. But a change soon took place in our political affairs, for upon November 13, 1849, the Constitution of the Territory was adopted, and Peter H. Burnett was elected our first governor. The election to vote upon the adoption of the Constitution, and for governor in this portion of the mining region, was held in a Hangtown hotel, and the border element was very strongly opposed to the whole business, claiming that we did not require law and order, Constitution, or governor either that we were getting along well enough without them. If the Yanks undertook to play any such nonsense, they'd be sorry for it. They made some show of resistance, but when they saw that the Yanks were in dead earnest and had come to the place of voting well-armed and prepared to maintain law and order, they reluctantly departed in disgust, and the Constitution was adopted unanimously. The first persons hung in California subsequent to the gold discovery were two Mexicans and an American. They were hung for horse-stealing and robbery during the fall of 48 in Hangtown, and it was from this fact that the mining camp derived its name. Although the campers enjoyed the unenviable reputation of being the place where many murderers and horse-thieves have been kindly laid to rest by the citizens, yet only one other individual was ever hung by the citizens of the place, and that was Irish Dick, 
a young gambler who was executed in the fall of 1850 for murder. A jury composed of minors was chosen. He was granted a fair trial, declared guilty, and sentenced to be hung from the old oak tree which stood upon the side of the hill across the creek at two o'clock of the same day. He requested permission to leap from the limb of the tree head foremost, but this favor could not be granted since it did not conform to the law and would be a very barbarous proceeding, as well as a bad precedent to establish, for in some parts of the country the trees were very small. As winter approached, emigrants who had come by steamer and across the Isthmus of Panama, as well as around the Horn, now commenced to arrive in great numbers and scattered about in various directions over the country in search for new mines. Soon other towns and camps were started, some very rich and valuable placer mines being discovered in the vicinity of Hangtown. Great excitement prevailed, and at this period of its history, Hangtown contained almost as large a population as the chief city of the country, San Francisco, and a year later El Dorado was called the Banner County. The winter following passed without the occurrence of any events in this portion of the country worth relating. Towards spring, news was received that rich mines had been found further north. From this fact, it was concluded that all the gold had been originally washed down from the north by floods or brought down by glacial action. Consequently, the mines would be richer as you advanced toward the North Pole. This belief was almost universal among the mining classes, and some were so sanguine that such would prove to be the case that one miner offered to bet that if you'd only go fur enough to the north, you'd find their gold all coined and sacked up, ready for shipping. Great preparations were therefore made for leaving the old worked-out mining regions in the central portions of the state, and towards the spring of 50, the stampede convinced for the Yuba, Bear River, and other rich mining camps to the north. Well, I hope you've enjoyed Charles Haskins' Gold Rush reminiscences. If you want more, and there's a lot of it, a link to the entire text of the Argonauts of California is posted online at sparkletech.com. As always, I've assembled a few links to some choice supporting materials, and if this is the first time you've listened to SparkleTech, a fantastic rainbow of other stories from San Francisco and California history are available for your listening pleasure as well. Thanks to Gringo Motel for the show's theme track today, El Corodobes, courtesy of PodsafeAudio.com. The rest of the music came from the public domain. Thanks for listening. Till next time.